Take your Bibles and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. And while you're turning there, I'm going to make just a couple of uh, comments from the bulletin, a few announcements we need to make. First of all, you may have already been uh, made aware of this, but we have the giving, uh, giving receipts, your annual giving receipts for those of you who, who need those for your taxes. Uh, Sharon has those available to hand out today if you want to pick that up. Sharon, raise your hand so everybody knows who you are. You have, you have M to the end and she has the beginning of the alphabet. Okay. So uh, see one of those two, either Sharon or Sue, uh, if you need that uh, to do your taxes. That's available to you today. Please notice the announcements there uh, under today at FBC. Planning session for Ladies Spring Banquet is today. Guys, this sounds awfully loud to me up here. Does it sound loud? Okay. Maybe it's just the monitor setting. It's okay. Planning session for the Ladies' Spring Banquet is today, and also there's a nursery volunteer meeting today. Please notice those announcements, and if you can help us with either of those things, just meet with us for a few minutes downstairs. How about if we say that the nursery meeting is going to be in the, in the conference room downstairs and the uh, planning session be in Fellowship Hall? Does that work? Okay. All right. So the nursery meeting will be in the nursery, and then the other will figure it out. They'll, they'll figure it out. Uh, the main announcement, though, is the Art of Marriage, which is coming up this weekend. If you have not signed up for that yet, it's still not too late to do so. Uh, you need to order books, which means you need to get cracking on that, because uh, it'll probably take you a few days to get them. But uh, read that announcement and, and see that information, and uh, I think it'll be a, a fun time if you'll come. The Art of Marriage it starts at 7 o'clock on Friday night, and then it meets for about half of the day on Saturday. Anybody notice anything odd about our bulletin this week? Why, is, why in the world, what's the matter with Sue? Why would she do that? It, it's, it's, it's like glaring on the eyes. Why would we need our bulletin to be red? Oh, that's right. Next Sunday is Red Heart Sunday. How could I have forgotten that? This is just too loud up here. <laughs> At least take me out of the monitors. Yeah. Red Heart Sunday. What are you going to do next week? We're going to red. We're red. And uh, you're going to bring... You're going to bring uh, chili or some other foods. Do we have a sign-up sheet out there for that now? So you can sign up to bring some food, and uh, we'll have a, a, just a great time. We have a truly, truly, truly great musical group that's going to be here with us, and uh, encourage you to come. All right, now, Second Samuel chapter 11, the last time that we were in our great stories of the Old Testament series, and we only have a few more weeks in that. Uh, was a few weeks ago. We took a break for some of our meetings and end of year activities, but uh, we talked about uh, David and Goliath. Today I want to talk about another story from the life of David, Second Samuel chapter 11. We begin reading in verse number 1. It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. For she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. And the woman conceived. So she sent and told David, and said, I am with child. Then David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. 
When Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war prospered. And David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house, and a gift of food from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. So when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents. My lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my, my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife as, as you live and as your soul lives? I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, wait here today also, and tomorrow I will let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now when David called him, he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. And an evening he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning... It happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. So it was while Joab besieged the city that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there were valiant men. Then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the people of the servants of David fell and Uriah the Hittite died also. Then Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war and charged the messenger, saying, When you have finished telling the matters of the war to the king, if it happens that the king's wrath rises and he says to you, Why did you approach so near to the city when you fought? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Was it not a woman who cast a piece of a millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent by him. And the messenger said to David, Surely the men prevailed against us and came out to us in the field. Then we drove them back as far as the entrance of the gate. The archers shot from the wall at your servants, and some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, so encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased Well, Father, we're, as always, thankful and in awe of your word. And we're thankful, Father, that you don't paint pretty pictures and just uh, cover up things that we need to know and understand. I thank you, Lord, that the Bible speaks truth and speaks it clearly and speaks it frankly. And so I pray today as we look at this story, this sad time in the life of David and Bathsheba, that, oh, Father, you'd speak to our hearts, speak to my heart today. Help us to see uh, the, the blackness of it, but also the glorious, glorious truth of your grace that shines through it. So speak to us this day. And if there's anybody here who needs to respond to this this day, I pray that they would. In Jesus' name.
Well, if we only knew the history of David up to this point, before this point, if, if in this particular crowd I were to ask you to fill in the blank, David and blank, especially after our last uh, study in the life of David, almost everybody in the room would probably have said David and Goliath. But having this story added to the, to the record and knowing what we do about David uh, in total, if we were to ask that question today, probably a good half of folks would say David and Bathsheba. This particular thing uh, damaged David's reputation forever, that which happened right here. And, and not just David's, it also damaged Bathsheba's name and reputation forever. And what was the thing that happened here in this particular chapter? It could be summed up in one little word, one very ugly word, one word which we don't like to use and many people don't even believe exists, and that's the word sin. This story we've read this morning has a glaring spotlight on sin. It talks about the reality of sin in ways that I don't know that we see any place else in, Bible, in the Bible is clearly portrayed. And I think we can find some things out about the reality of sin by considering it in light of the four characters, at least the four main characters in this particular story. In the, in, in the, in the light of, uh, of David, of Bathsheba, of Uriah, and of God. So let us look at the reality of sin as it is seen in David. Of course, that would be the major part, I think, of this story. Let's review for just a moment, shall we, what we just read. David, the warrior king, is hanging out in his house while his armies went to war. He was idle. He was bored. He was lounging around in his house, and so he decided to take a walk on the rooftop of his home. This, this was and is a common thing in Israel. If you go to Israel today, you'll see that the houses, even today, are built the same way. They're built with flat roofs, and those flat roofs often are actually an extension of the living space of the home. David lived in a palace. His house was bigger, no doubt, than the houses that were surrounding him, and therefore he could see down onto neighboring rooftops. So David looked down, and he saw Bathsheba bathing on the roof of her house. David looked some more. He wanted her. He inquired about her. He sent for her, and he took her. And as often happens when that particular sin is practiced, Bathsheba became pregnant. So David tried to cover it up. He tried to cover it up by bringing her husband Uriah home from the war front and encouraging him to go and spend time with his wife. Nobody would suspect a thing after that. After all, when the child had, was born, people would think that Uriah was the father of the child, and only David and Bathsheba would know the truth. But David's plan failed because Uriah was far too honorable to do that. He was a warrior. His brothers in arms were out in the field, and he was not willing to go and enjoy the pleasures of his wife and home while they were fighting. And so David's plan backfired. He even tried to get him drunk, and still not get Uriah to go to his home. And so desperate, David did something we can scarcely believe. He wrote a note to Joab, his general, and told him to position Uriah in the battle in such a way so as to ensure his death. And if that wasn't bad enough, he handed that note to Uriah so that Uriah could carry his own death warrant to his own death. 
Of course, that's what happened. Uriah was killed in the battle. And then when David heard of Uriah's death, he sent for Bathsheba, and he married her. I don't know about you, but when you read this, when I read this, I I can't help but react in amazement. Almost stunned silence, I think, as we think about this. You know, in the annals of the world, there have been a lot of terrible sins. There's no question about it. But I think if we were to list the, the great sins in the world, I think most people would put this sin with David and Bathsheba and Uriah somewhere, Uriah, somewhere on that list. And here's the amazing thing. This was David. David. This was the man after God's own heart. This was the sweet psalmist and shepherd of Israel. You 150 psalms in, our, in the middle of our Bible and the vast majority of them written by David. This was the one who up to this point had been so vocal and so focused on living for God and serving God and pointing others to God. David, one of the greatest heroes of the Bible. So we come to this point in the story, and we have to kind of hang our heads, I think, don't we? Because we don't know what to make of it. From lesser men, we might have not been surprised. But from David? Well, let me make just a few observations. And the first one would be this. David was just a man. David was just a man. You know, he was not immune to sin, and neither am I, and neither are you. None of us are immune to sin. You are in danger of sin every minute of your life. If it could happen to a man of the stature of David and David's godliness, it can happen to you, and it can happen to me. Notice how one commentator described this story. He said this. He said, the various arts and stratagems by which the king tried to cajole Uriah till at last he resorted to the horrid crime of murder, the cold-blooded cruelty of dispatching the letter by the hands of the gallant but much-wronged soldier himself, the enlistment of Joab to be a partaker of his sin, the heartless affectation of mourning, and the indecent haste of his marriage with Bathsheba have left an indelible stain upon the character of David and exhibit a painfully humiliating proof of the awful lengths to which the best of men may go when they forfeit the restraining grace of God. Did you catch that phrase? The best of men. I have used that phrase so many times, and I have quoted Alistair Begg's words on that so many times. I'm sure it's not original with him, but he uses it a lot, and it's true. The best of men are men at best, and that's the reality of sin. We ought not to be confused by this story. Some people want to read 2 Samuel chapter 11 and they want want to walk away thinking what a bum David was. What an evil guy. But this wasn't a bum. This was David. Some read this story and you can almost see the sneer building on their faces as they read it. But such are fools. They don't understand what's really taking place here. This was not a bum. He was not an evil man. This was David, one of the most godly men in the pages of Scripture. And so the lesson is, if it could happen to him, it can happen to me, and it can happen to you. The reality of sin is that it is real, it is ever-present, it is powerful, it is something you must be on guard against always because it can trip you up just as it was able to trip David up. Well, that's one observation. David was just a man. Here's a second David was not doing his job and because he was idle and laying about his house. We see that in verse number 1, don't we? David remained at Jerusalem. 
You know, our president is our commander-in-chief here in the United States of America. And in a similar fashion, David was the commander-in-chief of his armed forces, his army. Uh, the implication in verse number one there is that David was shirking. He was not fulfilling his obligations. He had off, offloaded that onto Joab and said, you guys go fight. I'm going to hang around the house. And he stayed back home. Had David been at the front where he should have been, he would not have had time to think about Bathsheba. He would not have had time to laze about on the rooftop of his house looking up for, his, for trouble. And he would not have had time for an illicit relationship with the wife of one of his mighty men. Busy people are less likely to get into trouble. Believe that? Busy people. When we were kids, we often heard the little phrase, idle hands are the devil's workshop. Whose mom used to tell you that? My mom did all the time. Idle hands are the devil's workshop. And that's the case with David here. He was idle. He was laying about his house with nothing to do. And the reality of sin is that that makes us ripe for a fall. Idleness places us in grave danger. You know, I think we would do well as Americans to ask whether it is wise for us to spend as much idle time laying about our homes as we do. Because it's a real problem in America today. We're way too comfortable sometimes. Too many of us claim to be too busy to serve God, too busy to do the things God wants us to do or to faithfully participate in the corporate life of his church or or to exercise the spiritual gifts that he has given to each one of us and commanded us to use. But if we're honest, it's not that we're too busy at all. It's that we like laying about our house. It's that we like sitting in our easy chairs. It's that we like that life of idleness, our big screen TVs. Too many of us need to see David here and recognize ourselves in him. We wonder at the failure of marriages. We wonder at the wandering from the faith of our children. We wonder at the skyrocketing corruption and wickedness that is everywhere, even in our churches. When we look at David's example here, the reality is that sin pounced when he was idle, when he took a break from serving God, and when he grew comfortable and idle. Well, that's the second observation. Let's look at a third. David looked where he shouldn't have looked. Verse number two, it happened one evening that David arose from his bed, walked on the roof of his house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. He looked where he should not have looked. Let me speak for just a moment to the men and to the boys in the room. The particular temptation that is mentioned here and the sin that is described here, sexual sin, is a grave danger to every one of us as men. David was not immune, and neither are you. I don't care who you are. You know, this is one of the only things in the Bible that tells us not to resist. It doesn't tell us to resist it. It doesn't tell us to fight against it. It tells us only one thing. It says, flee from it. Run from it. Because there is not a man alive who is strong enough to resist it. If David couldn't, neither can you. And neither can I. 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee fornication. Every one of us should have that verse circled in our Bible. 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee fornication. Say it with me, man. Flee fornication. I preach about the evils of today's media. You know what I see in this place? I see eyes roll. I see people look at me with pity. But my brothers, young and old, you cannot watch half-naked or naked women on TV or your PC or your phones or however else you're looking at it without being affected by it. You cannot do it. 
I preach about the evils of the Internet and the pornography and the wickedness that is so much a part of that. And, and, and most people just look away. They don't want to talk about that. But you need to hear me as a brother this morning. You cannot handle it. I cannot handle it. David could not handle it. And if he couldn't, neither can any of us. Some years ago, there was a Mazda commercial. I had a Mazda at the time, so for some reason this has stuck with me. But their little tagline, their little advertising campaign was, Just one look, that's all it took, and then you go out and buy a Mazda. Well, that's all it took for David, too. Just one look. And that's all it takes for some of us. It's too strong. We cannot... It. We can't try and build up a resistance to it. The Bible says what we're supposed to do with respect to this sin is run from it like a scared ape. That's what you're supposed to do. Now, let me speak to the ladies and to the women for just a moment. Because whether you know it or not, you are not immune to this either. I did a little bit of research. I read that uh, 40 to 50 percent those viewing pornography online are girls and women. Interesting. And apparently that percentage goes up. It's, it's continuing to rise as time goes on. Another interesting statistic indicated that 80% of women viewing it view it not on computers, but rather on their phones. <laughs> My sisters, Paul's warning is for you too. Flee from it. Flee from it. Run from it. And now let me speak to parents. Parents. For your kids' sake, do not allow unfettered access to this kind of information. You cannot do that, whether they are boys or girls. It is not a matter of trust. I hear parents say all the time, I trust my kids. It's not a matter of trust. It's a matter of the reality of sin. Did you listen to the first point? If it happened to David, it can happen to anybody. And I don't care what, what kind of a little angel you think your child is. They're not more godly than David if it could happen to him. It happened to them. Parents, protect your kids. That includes their phones. Protect them. That great Puritan preacher, Richard Baxter, warned one time. He said this, Keep as far as you can from those temptations which feed and strengthen the sins which you would overcome. Lay siege to your sins and starve them out by keeping away the food and fuel which is their maintenance and life. It's a great quote. I have another book at home that I shared with the elders recently. It's called The Valley of Vision. It's a collection of prayers of the Puritans. And uh, some of the things they say in there are great. And just this week I was reading one of those prayers, and I prayed along as, uh, as that old Puritan prayed, Lord, remove the fuel of my sins today. David looked where he shouldn't have looked. Fourth observation in verses 3 and 4. It didn't stop with a look. Looking became wanting, wanting, became inquiring, inquiring, became taking, taking, became lying, lying, became murdering. And before you know it, temptation, which is not sin, became sin. The reality of sin is that things can start so small and seem so small at that start, and then they can become so big, so fast. When David had the lazy impulse to lay around his house and Take a few vacation days at the palace. I guarantee you he did not think to himself, you know, I think I'll stay back and murder my good friend Uriah this week. I'm sure that thought never crossed his mind. Nor did he at that, at that particular time think that his simple desire to take a break would result in 
uh, in adultery and, and pregnancy and murder and ruined lives. But it did. What started small progressed into something not small at all. I don't know where I first heard this quote. I've heard it many different times in many different places, but it's a good one. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. David's look became this snowball of horror that grew to include deception and and even the murder of an innocent man. David's life from that point on was influenced and forever changed and disrupted by this sin and its results. It followed him for the rest of his life. Fifth observation about David, and then we'll we'll move on. David could have stopped this at any point along the way. When the initial temptation to idleness entered his mind, he could have remembered his responsibilities and shook it off. Amen? When the glance from his rooftop revealed something he should not see, he could have left the rooftop rather than continue to look. He could have left it at a look, even if it was a lingering look, and he fell to that. Rather than inquire into the woman's situation, he could have still walked away. And once he found out who she was, the wife of one of his mighty men, brave Uriah. Sometime read Second Samuel chapter 23 and see what a great and loyal servant of David this man Uriah was. That he was going to murder. He could have slammed on the brakes then. At any time along the way, David could have stopped this situation. He could have chosen To do right, he could have said no to the sin. Aristotle said, Aristotle said, what it lies in our power to do, it lies in our power not to do. Aristotle said, I count him braver who overcomes his desires than him who overcomes his enemies. If a worldly philosopher like Aristotle could understand that, he could recognize that truth, how much more we who are indwelled by the Spirit of God, and we are indwelled by the Spirit of God, That's another reality of sin. You and I don't have to fall prey to it. As spirit-indwelt, blood-bought, born-again believers, we can say no to sin. Joseph did. Joseph said no to sin. Joseph was tempted in an even worse way than David was. Joseph was almost being forced into it. But he said no one ran from it. David could have done the same. We need to look at great King David here sinking into ruination and plummeting from the lofty heights of his victory over Goliath and his sweet uh, service of the Lord, sweet singing, plummeting from that into the cesspool of adultery and deceit and murder. And we need to learn to fear and hate the reality of sin. Well, let's talk about somebody else. The reality of sin is definitely seen in David, but I want to suggest to you today, and some of you are not going to like this one, but the reality of sin is also seen in Bathsheba. In Bathsheba, verse number 2 says, He saw a woman bathing. Now, we all want to make excuses for sin. Women, especially, love to make excuses for some of the women in the Bible. And they try to paint Bathsheba here as a victim. In our day and age, Bathsheba would be a hero of the Me Too movement. Would she not? But there are no excuses, and nobody gets a pass when it comes to sin. We are all responsible for our own sin. We certainly don't want to minimize David's sin in this matter. We're certainly not trying to do that. But we also do not want to minimize Bathsheba's sin in this story. I remember watching an interview with Mel Gibson right about the time he came out with his movie, The Passion of the Christ, and the uh, the 
person who was interviewing him was trying to get him uh, to say something bad about the Jews. He was trying to trip him up on that and, and, and uh, trying to accuse him of blaming the Jews to an inordinate amount for the crucifixion of Christ. And Mel's response was interesting. He said, nobody gets a pass. And I thought that was good. Nobody does get a pass. And although some want to let Bathsheba off as an innocent, we can't do that. Nobody gets a pass when it comes to sin. The reality is that, uh, that, that sometimes sin takes the form of looking, as with David. Sin also sometimes takes the form of luring, as with Bathsheba. It was sin for Bathsheba to expose herself in a place where she knew the king would be able to see her. It was sin for her to show herself to him in such a way that he would be tempted. When it comes to the sin of adultery, both men and women are equally warned in Scripture. Let me read you a couple of verses. Leviticus chapter 20, the man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress, shall surely be put to death. Deuteronomy 22, verse 22, If a man is found lying with a woman married to a husband, then both of them shall die, the man that lay with the woman and the woman. So you you shall put away the evil from Israel. No distinction is made there between the man and the woman with respect to their guilt. Both are guilty in this sin. So ladies, girls, listen to me. Your television sets, the Internet, the world at large, will never tell you this. They will actually tell you exactly the opposite. But the fact is how you dress matters. And dressing immodestly in a way to tempt is sin. David gets no pass for turning toward the temptation, but neither does Bathsheba for initiating it. Now I can hear all kinds of objections swirling around this room. It's amazing how quiet it gets in a room like this when you're talking about a subject like this. And I can hear the objections. So I want to be clear about something. We're not talking about rape. We're not talking about abuse. We're not talking about any of those kinds of crimes that might be committed. Those are different circumstances, and we'd be having a completely different conversation. But none of that occurred here. This was not rape. This was not abuse. Both were, at least to an extent, willing participants in this sin. We see that in verse number 4. She came to him. She could have and should have stopped this thing at every step along the way. She did not have to go along with it. And I can hear another objection swirling around, oh, but pastor, he was the king, and she had to do what he said. How many of you were here for our study of Esther? If you were here for our study of Esther, you know how nonsensical that statement is. Queen Vashti, the king demanded that she perform lewdly for his guests. She flatly refused. Oh, there was a cost to that refusal, but she did refuse and did not do the sinful thing that he asked her to do. The same with Esther herself, who stood up to the king several different times. So there's a reality of sin seen in David. There's a reality of sin seen in Bathsheba. Let's think about Uriah just for a second. I'll just make a, one comment about Uriah. We had more time. There's a lot we could say about this man. He was a tremendous loyal supporter of David and, and Israel. But let me just draw one point from him about how reality of sin is seen in him. And that's this. Our sin affects other people. My sin affects other people. Why do bad things happen to good people is a question that gets asked an awful lot. And there are, of course, several answers to that question. One reason bad things happen to people is because of their sin. 
just this couple weeks ago, three weeks ago, sometime during this hunting season, I went down to my brother's to hunt in southern Ohio. And as I was driving back home in my pickup, passed a little sign. They put these little signs alongside the road. They're about that big. You almost need a magnifying glass to see them. And they say, speed, photographically monitor, or something like that. So I thought, hmm, I should probably slow down. But I obviously didn't think about it enough because uh, a couple weeks later, I got this interesting letter in the mail, and it had this very good picture of my truck. I could actually frame it. And this nasty little reminder that I now owed some money. Now, I, I, I could sit around and blame that on all kinds of people, and I'm sure I did, and my wife could probably tell you all the people I blamed for that. But the fact is, I obviously was speeding, and I could blame nobody else for the results of that sin but me. And so sometimes these bad things happen because of our own sin. But here's Uriah's. What we learn from Uriah is sometimes it happens because of the sin of other people. Sometimes it's because their sin affects. You can't sin without affecting somebody else. You can't do that. The sin of parents affects their children. The sin of children affects their parents. None of us are islands. So I'll leave that there and let you think about that. But the reality of sin is seen in Uriah in that way. And then finally, one last thing. The reality of sin is seen in God. Jump down to the very end of the chapter. The very last verse of the chapter. Verse 27. When her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Is there ever bed anywhere in the Bible A better example of understatement than that particular phrase. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Throughout Scripture, God has made his views clear on the sin of adultery. Leviticus 20, verse 10, the man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and adulteress shall surely be put to death. God has made his views on sin in general very, very clear. The soul who sins shall die. It's repeated twice in Ezekiel chapter 8. And the reality of sin that is seen in this particular chapter is that it was not ultimately against David or against Bathsheba or even against Uriah. It was and is ultimately against God. And the single most amazing thing about this story is how God, the one who was most wronged in the whole thing, dealt with it. Next week we're going to look at chapter 12. Lord willing, we'll look at chapter 12. And we will talk about the rest of the story. And we'll learn that David repented of his sin. God restored him. And we'll see the ending was glorious. A wonderful illustration of God's grace. It almost seems like a footnote to the story, doesn't it? The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. But it's the very center of it all. The reality of sin is that when we sin, it is an affront to God. Our sin displeases God. So let me give just a brief spoiler of what happened next and what we'll talk about next week. Jump down to verse number 13 of chapter 12 and notice David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. The Lord also has put away your sin. Think about the implications of this story just for a moment. The implications of it to your life. Because the reality of sin is that it is in all of us. 
We are no different than David or Bathsheba. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the reality of that sin is that it displeases God. No matter how we might excuse it or deny it or try to hide it, God sees it. In spite of all David's machinations, God saw it. And it displeased him and it displeases him when we do the same. God says plainly in the Bible that he cannot and will not allow sin in his presence. And so our sin against God drives a wedge between us and him. The soul who sins shall die, Ezekiel 18. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above you, heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. The story doesn't end there. The story goes on. And thankfully, that terrible, terrible note is not the end. When David repented of his sin, confessed of his sin, admitted it, and turned away from it, God forgave it. The Lord has put away your sin. That's the same with us. We confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yeah, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So here's the greatest reality of sin. The greatest reality of sin is that no matter the depths of it, no matter if our sin was as terrible as David's, God's grace is greater. Amen? God's grace is greater. So I ask you this morning, what about you? Have you dealt with the reality of sin in your life? Have you recognized the fact of it? Have you come to understand the danger of it? Have you come to know the depths to which it displeases God? And do you want to do something about it? If so, then you need to do what David did. We'll talk about it more next week. I'll just tell you right now what he did. He confessed it. He repented of it. That's what you need to do. Confess it. Repent of it. And then turn to the Lord Jesus Christ who already paid the price for your sin on the cross of Calvary and who will take it away from you forever if you will but ask him to do so. Timothy Keller said, and I close with this quote, Jesus is the only Lord who, if you receive him, will fulfill you completely. And if you fail him, he'll still forgive you. Praise God. Well, Father, we're thankful. We're thankful for the story of David. And even though it's difficult reading and it, uh, it makes us think and sad, sad aspects of it, yet, Lord, your grace is seen so much. And we'll see it even more as we read the next chapter. But I pray uh, this morning that as we think through this, as we end our service, as we sing our final song, that all the Holy Spirit would get a hold of our hearts and apply it there. There may be some here today, Lord, who have never dealt with the reality of sin in their own life, and they may not even be saved. There may be some here today who have never said, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner, and I know I need to be saved. And so I pray if that's the case, they would this day. May they see how much sin displeases you, their sin, and may they confess it and repent of it and turn it over to you and say, Lord, I want Jesus to be my Savior. Lord, if there's some here who are lost, may they be saved this day. And, Lord, the same is true of believers. There are some who maybe have drifted, some who maybe are not as close as they once were, some who, even though they're born again and sure of their, of their eternal home in heaven, they, they may be living in a way that is displeasing to you. They may have something in their life. David was a saved man. 
So, Lord, if there are those in that state, I pray they'd recognize the solution is the same. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I pray if there are those who need to just come and say, Lord, forgive me and cleanse me and make me whole again, I pray they'd do it. Father, as we sing, deal with our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name.